0: to read this for us, and then I'll pray, and then uh, we'll get started. This is John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Ghana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two, others of, of, two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciples, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us briefly. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for, um, thank you for the beauty and the power of the resurrection uh, that you display to all of heaven and earth, that you are a God who goes to extraordinary lengths to save us from sin and from death. And you are the God who takes great pleasure in drawing near to us, especially in our weakest and our darkest moments. And what a beautiful story we have before before us this morning in Peter, but also in our lives. And so I pray as we consider uh, what the resurrected Jesus means to us and to our lives and your call on our lives, that we would come away with a deeper understanding of just how beautiful and powerful your love for your people is. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, rock and redeemer. Amen. Uh, chapter 21 in the Gospel of John is it's one of my favorite passages uh, in the Gospel accounts for a lot of reasons, some of which I already joked about. Uh, I love that Jesus called fishermen If you're here and you don't know me, if you talk to me for two minutes, you're going to find out that I love fishing. I've spent my entire life fishing, whether it's creeks, rivers, the ocean, sewage drains, whatever. It is ingrained in my DNA. And when I read this account of uh, these men who were fishermen their whole lives, who get called into uh, discipleship, and for some of these men, apostleship, it just makes my little heart sing. Um... This chapter is such a beautiful epilogue to John's gospel because if you've noticed um, in our past several sermons, what we've really seen is that there's a flow from the cosmic also to the personal in in the resurrection account here. So there's a cosmic display of Jesus. Uh, He is persecuted, murdered, crucified for the sins of the world and then he is resurrected from the dead. And he gives this cosmic display of the power and the righteousness and the judgment and the holiness and the mercy of God in a, in a panoramic way for all of heaven and earth to see. But what's really sweet about how John closes out this gospel is he keeps that theme but he also makes it deeply personal. Uh, if you didn't hear uh, Charlie's sermon last week, let me encourage you to listen to it. It's probably the favorite one. I told him this. is the favorite sermon I've ever heard him give. It's a deeply personal encounter where Jesus literally breaks into a locked room of these men that he loves and proves to them that he's come back from the dead. Why? So he could prove to them that this cosmic resurrection power, this victory that God's just displayed is also deeply personal for them. Here we see a different version of that uh, with Peter. This is uh, Peter's experience of being restored from the deepest lows and the biggest failure of uh, his ministry. And let me tell you, that's saying something for a guy like Peter. If you're familiar with him, this is a guy that, again, I resonate with in a lot of ways. the main idea that I want us to think about is simply this is, as we look at this story, uh, that even though we all inevitably fail God, every one of us fails God, he never fails us. It's as simple as that. Uh, and we'll think about that in uh, three ways uh, through the lens of this story. First, that Jesus always meets us where we are. Uh, second, that he invites us to come to him with our brokenness. And third, that he overcomes every obstacle in our life. So first, that Jesus always meets us where we are. If you think about this part of the story with the disciples, uh, the dust has settled a little bit. This is the third time that Jesus appears to, to this group of the disciples. Um, Peter, if you've been able to read the Gospels at all, is a really interesting guy. He's the guy that some scholars will say has a foot-shaped, foot-sized mouth. Uh, if he's anything, he's passionate Uh, This is the man that uh, was quick to tell Jesus that he was devoted to him. Uh, After all the teaching that Jesus gave about bringing a gospel of peace and forgiving our enemies, this is the man that sees Jesus getting arrested and his first inclination is, you know what, I'm gonna cut this dude's ear off. Uh, This is the man who was, uh, you know, in the fishing world, I've grown up fishing on the ocean. In the fishing world, uh, fishermen tend to be brash, passionate, genuine, whatever they are, wherever they are, whatever they think, they're going to tell you straight up. There's no editing, especially like if you're on a fishing boat with other fishing men. That wherever they are and whoever they are, you're going to know w- within 90 seconds. And there's a term that we usually use. Uh, if I'm talking to another, another guy about a captain or somebody that works on a boat or a commercial fisherman like Peter was, uh, we'll ask, we'll say, well, what's he like? And if they want to sum all that up in one word, they'll be like, he's, he's salty. He's a salty guy. Uh, That describes Peter's nature in a lot of ways. Peter was a salty guy. But he loved Jesus. That much is true. His love for Jesus uh, was genuine. And so here, when Jesus starts showing up, when he's resurrected again, the dust is kind of settling for Peter in his heart. Uh, He is standing here, having seen Jesus come back from the dead and appear to them several times, what do you think he's thinking about? You think it's on. We're going you know, to do everything Jesus said we were going to do. If you were listening when we read the story, that's not what he's thinking about at all. He's standing there thinking, well, I wonder what this means for me now. Why is that? Peter, uh, Peter is a man who, um, although he was passionate and devoted to Jesus, Peter was also a man who uh, failed Jesus probably at... What he would understand to be the most important moment of his life as a disciple. Uh, internally, I think that Peter was probably going through an emotional and spiritual roller coaster, since Jesus uh, appeared to them when he when he appeared for them the, the first time, and especially the second time, and now the third time. As we're reading the story, I think that Peter was probably going through an emotional roller coaster that made him rethink everything he thought he knew about God and also his own faith. Uh, In the account here, it talks about the fact that uh, they were standing at the Sea of Galilee. And I love um, the Gospel of John because it's it's filled with rich symbolism. And uh, even the location is important. You know, when Jesus called the disciples to himself, he called them at the Sea of Galilee. Actually, when he met Peter, one of the things that he said to him, he performed a miracle, a great catch of fish. And one of the things he said to him was, I am going to make you a fisher of men. And so in the resurrection part of the story, he actually says, uh, he sends word to the disciples and he says, I will see you at the Sea of Galilee. And so here they are. They've seen Jesus twice. They go back to the Sea of Galilee, and they're standing around. And so what does Peter do? Like a good fisherman, he says, well, I'm going fishing. I don't know what any of this means for me or what Jesus is going to do when he shows up, but I guess I'm going to go fishing. And the other disciples say, all right, we'll go with you. Now, you may not relate to the circumstances of Peter's life, and you may not have uh, a catastrophic failure in your own life and faith yet. I suspect every one of us has got at least one good one in us that we will have at some point in our life, but maybe you haven't had that yet. Uh, But his experience is universal in the sense that we all struggle uh, in similar ways as Peter was in this moment. Uh, Every one of us, if you're here and you have a saving relationship with Jesus, every one of us has had a life-transforming encounter with Jesus, right? Usually it's right when you get saved. Uh, And if you notice, that usually means you you are on fire. Most of us are so on fire when we meet Jesus, and rightfully so. Uh, And that translates into a joy and a desire to walk with him, to follow him, and this desire to be obedient, to follow Jesus as a disciple. Uh, Typically all of us have this experience of that glow kind of wearing off, and that's not because the power of God is any less uh, in control of our life. It's typically because of what's going on in our hearts and where we're at in our own faith. The glow tends to wear out for all of us. We all find that one day we'll wake up and we'll realize we're failing in our calling in some way. Maybe it's small, maybe it's colossal, but we all kind of, we all kind of blow it with God. If you think about it, that, every one of us could admit that, that we've all blown it with God in some way uh, in our walk with him. Internally, what I found that happens for me and with with a lot of people is that when we fail to follow Jesus faithfully, we typically internalize that in a lot of different ways. Some of us get prideful, uh, we'll get defensive. Other times, and I think most common what we do is we tend to isolate. We become ashamed and afraid and embarrassed. Uh, We tend to isolate ourselves from God and his people Think about this, when you're really struggling with a a colossal sin or a failure in your life, is it easy to show up at church? Or is it harder on those Sundays when you're really struggling? Typically for most of us, it's a lot harder. And that's okay for us to admit. Uh, But we tend to cut ourselves off from the very thing that God has given us to remind us of who he is and what he's doing. So what does Jesus do? In the same way that he comes right to the shoreline, he meets us as well. That's what he's doing for Peter and the disciples. Uh, The significance of Jesus' resurrection appearance is, like I said, it's both universal in a sense, but it's also deeply personal. Uh, If you think about this chapter, um, this is the God who conquered death itself and paid the penalty for sin uh, and confirmed that he has power over everything, that he has the power to save. Uh, but it's also deeply personal. He performs the same miracle that he did uh, for the disciples in a miraculous catch of fish. That would resonate with them, not just as fishermen, but as men who had seen the supernatural in Jesus. Uh, He also is, in a sense, starting this dialogue that he needs to have with Peter. Um, That miracle that he performed, the miraculous catch of fish, was the point where he told Peter, I will make you a fisher of men. He gave him his calling. He said, look, you're not just going to be a fisherman on the sea anymore. You are going to be a fisherman in the kingdom of God. Peter was an apostle. And in a sense, he's starting in this conversation that he needs to have with Peter. Peter. Uh, This account is not one of Peter getting corrected or rebuked. It's one of him being saved from himself and being restored to the calling that God had given him. And you know, for you and I, uh, when Jesus applies his resurrection power in our lives, it's also deeply personal for you and I. Um, God will always meet you and I in the places where we are typically most afraid he's going to show up. The the places that we have the hardest time inviting him into are the places that he shows up. He always tracks you down. There's one thing that I've learned about the love of Jesus is that you cannot get away from it. The love of Christ will always run you down no matter where you're at. Uh, That was true of Peter, and it's true for every one of us. You know, I think uh, if you're like me, typically we love that idea when everything's going well. There's this notion I have that rattles around in my head that I think many of us struggle with in some way, shape, or form, that we love the idea of God being on display in our life when everything's going good, right? I love it. If I'm not struggling with anything, if I'm just killing it, I'm crushing it in life, I'm like, totally, man. Resurrection life. Check this out. Or me, I mean this out. Check Jesus out. Uh, But we hate the idea when we are just becoming a train wreck When we're filled with fear, when we're filled with embarrassment and shame, we hate the idea of Jesus invading that part of our life with his love. Uh, But that's exactly where he wants to go. That's exactly where he wants to meet uh, you and I. And to be sure, there's nothing wrong with uh, striving for a healthy rhythm of spiritual intimacy with God. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's actually a fundamental hallmark of discipleship. We're all called to practice that in our lives. Uh, But here, though, in this story, I think uh, what the the Apostle John is highlighting for us is that he's showing us that Jesus always desires to move towards us, especially in our weakness, the places where we struggle. Um... especially during times of our greatest failures in life. The bigger the mess that you've made in your life, the more that Jesus wants to be there with you in it. Uh, That's just true. It's true of his love for you. Uh, It's true of his love for Peter as we see in this story. In the same way that Peter denied Jesus, when you and I struggle and deny uh, Jesus' authority in our life, Uh, He wants to press in and show us that his love for us is even greater than that. Uh, When you and I struggle with the shame that typically comes after realizing we've been living in disobedience to God, uh, he wants to come to us and show us that his mercy and grace is even greater than that. That no matter what we use to push against God, his love for us presses in and overcomes that. You know, it's, it's in those experiences that you and I have where God presses in, comes to us wherever we are and shows us that he desires to be with us in our weakest and our worst moments that we actually begin to see that he's just inviting us to bring all of our baggage to him. That's the second point, that he, he's always inviting you and I to come to him in our brokenness. Uh, I. I, th- I think um, many times uh, we love the proposition of bringing our baggage to God. But let me get a show of hands. How many of us find it really easy to bring the worst of us to God? <laughs> I had a potential right there, but he bailed out. Uh, and if you're here, uh, believers, we're in a room full of people who have experienced the resurrection power of Jesus, right? Right? It's hard. It's super hard for all of us to do that. Even though we know what Jesus says, we know what he did. We have a spirit that testifies, reminds us all the time that it's true. We know it. It is so challenging for us to do that. I think like Peter, we can can relate probably most with Peter in that when we see that we have failed to walk with God according to the way he calls us to, but also according to these desires that he cultivates in us, we feel embarrassed and ashamed. And we set out to disqualify ourselves from God's love and from God's grace and God's mercy uh, in our lives. But you you guys, if this story shows us anything, it, it shows us that God knows this. He knew that about Peter, and he met him where he was. He knows that about you and I, and he invites us to bring the very worst of us to him. Uh, The life of discipleship is one where God is inviting you to practice the discipline of being vulnerable with God and receiving that response of grace and forgiveness from him. It's one of the central parts of the journey that we're called on uh, in a life of faith with Jesus. Any the other, there's, uh, there's two senses in which we see Jesus working this out with Peter. There's a very personal sense in which he sets out to restore Peter and then there's a very public sense. Uh, there's a very personal and touching dynamic to this whole story uh, with Peter. It's super loaded with symbolism too. First, what's he do? He performs this miracle. He says, hey, did you guys catch anything? No, we didn't. And he's like, try the other side. Boom, they have this miracle performed again. John's like, you know who that is. Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to the shore. What does Jesus do? He doesn't start shellacking Peter for being a failed apostle, right? He says, come have a meal with me. Grab some of the fish. Let's eat and talk. It's a deeply personal offer that he gives him. And it also is, you know, that, that communion of a meal with God is... As we see every week, is a, is a deeply symbolic uh, and powerful symbol that God uses that He desires to have intimacy and communion with you and I. Uh, it's the first thing that He does. The other thing that He does with Peter as He starts this very weighty conversation with Him is He uses His given name. You know, when He met Peter, uh, the very first thing He does in John chapter 1, He's like, Hey, who are you? He's like, I'm Peter. He's like, I'm going to call you Cephas. I mean, could you imagine, you'd be like, no, my name's Peter. Like, no, 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 I'm going to call you, your name's going to be uh, The Rock. Here, in this account, he doesn't call him Cephas, He calls him Simon by his given name. And if, if you're here and you're a parent, you'll relate to this. Uh, when we're at home playing around, Jack, our youngest, our two-year-old, his nickname is Bubba. And so when we're playing around, we're just like, Bubba this, Bubba that. Hey, Bubba, what are you doing? But when we really genuinely want to connect with him, We use his given name, Uh, especially when we want him to understand what we're saying or we want to connect with him. We'll stop and we'll say, Jack, listen to daddy. And there's a sense in which Peter is experiencing that with Jesus. Uh, He's about to have this super heavy conversation with him in which Jesus is gonna highlight the worst failure that Peter had in his life and he begins by being very intimate with him. Um, this whole exchange, I've read a lot of scholars. I probably read too many this week. This whole exchange has been overanalyzed and overinterpreted in a thousand different ways. Uh, what I was super encouraged to see is that at the end of every scholar's interpretation of these three questions and the charge to love and serve God and his people, universally, every scholar agrees on one thing that this is not Peter being rebuked, this is him being restored. And so when Jesus has this conversation with Peter after the meal and asks him if he loves him three times, what he's doing is he's performing heart surgery for Peter. And in order to do that, he needs to take him to the heart of his shame and embarrassment and highlight what was going on in his denial of Jesus. Uh, In verses 15 through 17, Jesus' three questions really are designed to probe Peter to the very depths of his being and his soul. Uh, The first time he asks him, he says, do you love me more than these? That's an interesting question that he asks Uh, Peter. You know, there's a sense in which he's pointing Peter back to what he said to Jesus the night of the Last Supper. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, he said, look, every one of you is gonna fall away from me. And what was Peter's response? This was Peter's ride or die moment, right? I mean, he's like, even if all these guys fall away from you, I never will, because I love you more than they do. It's implicit in his statement. It's like, these guys might say they love you, but nobody loves you like I do. I will never fall away. And so here he is asking him, do you remember what you said to me? Do you love me more than these? Peter says, I do love you. You know that I love you. Three times he asked him the same question. Uh, And he uses it as a way to help Peter see the end of himself. You know, what I think about Peter is that he genuinely loved Jesus. I think that's true. But I think that he also boasted in what he thought was the strength of his own love for Jesus. The tragic downfall for Peter was that he was not focused on the love that Jesus had for him. And so he approached serving and loving God based on what he thought the depth of his love was. Which is why he made such a prideful boast in that moment. Even though he genuinely believed it. And what Jesus is doing here is he help, he's helping him see that the very end of his self-reliance is where genuine dependence and restoration begins with God. And so he does that by reminding him of his failure he's not being cruel to him it's actually the most loving thing that jesus could do is to highlight uh what's behind his failure in that moment and how it led him to all the shame and embarrassment that he was experiencing uh now what's also interesting is in the third question he doesn't compare his love uh to the other disciples if you notice that about peter what does peter say in the in the final answer. He's devastated, says that he was deeply grieved and how does he respond? He finally just, he stops trying to to defend himself. He says, you know everything. You know, it's it's almost as if he was saying, you know whether I love you or not. And you know that I made a mess, but you know that I also genuinely love you. In that moment, he's saying, "You, you truly know all things. You know the depths of my heart. Everything that I've been embarrassed, to show you, you know all this. And you also know whether I love you or not, you know that I do. Um, This is Peter's come to Jesus moment, chapter nine, (laughs) right? And that is one of the hugest encouragements in this story is that you can have those come to Jesus moments until you literally physically are glorified and you come to Jesus for the last time. That's one of the favorite things I've learned about being loved by Jesus is God knows that you're constantly going to stray. But by the power of his love for you, he's always gonna restore you. He's always gonna bring you back. Uh, And so you can have a come to Jesus moment every morning if you have to. And some weeks I feel like the first thing when I wake up I'm like okay, you gotta drag me back into this one. This is Peter's come back to Jesus moment, where Jesus truly restores him and reminds him, my love is greater than your failure. You know, and the beautiful thing is that usually when we're afraid of how God's gonna respond to our failure and sin, uh, we build this whole narrative in our head of what God is gonna say, what he's gonna do, how he might punish us for our failures. And here in Jesus, you don't see any of that. You know, he doesn't look at Peter and say, yeah, it's true you love me, but man, it's pretty weak. I do know your heart. I know you love me, but man, you're a train wreck. You really got to work on it. I'm going to give you, let's do a 90-day probationary apostleship and see how this works out for you. He doesn't say any of that. Embedded in this dialogue is the fact that he's also publicly restoring him there's a sense in which all the other disciples needed to see Peter, the guy who denied Jesus publicly at his worst moment, restored uh, to his apostleship, restored to the call on his life. Even though he denied Jesus outright three times, uh, Jesus restores him three times affirming that the call that God have on him is true, that God's love for Peter hasn't changed, that his forgiveness could not be revoked, and that The mission that God called him in couldn't even be changed by his failure. Think about that. I mean, the implication of that for you and I in our everyday life is hard to believe at times because what he's saying is that no matter how bad you screw something up, if God's called you to walk with him and he's called you to do something in life, you can't even stop it. You can't even stop it. You can try. Lord knows there's times when I have in my own life, but you can't stop it. Uh, it's the most liberating truth, and we see Peter experiencing that here in this moment. You know, uh, as intimidating as it is, there's also a sense in which God ordains that, that you and I have to be publicly restored. You know, why is that scary? That's scary for me because that means that I also publicly have to acknowledge my train racks, right? But God, what is one of the most powerful ways that God works out salvation? It's through the lives of people. And again, we have the strong draw, you know, the spiritual pride to only display that when we're doing everything right. But God is really most powerfully on display when we're vulnerable and transparent about the way that we struggle. Uh, and so God calls you and I to, to do the same thing. Uh, and that means that we need to be willing to be vulnerable with God and then allow him to transform us into people who publicly display our own shortcomings and failures, not so we can be embarrassed in front of the world, but so that we can be a living testimony to the fact that God restores anyone and that God makes beautiful things out of broken things and that he builds a beautiful people out of imperfect and flawed sinners. I was at lunch the other day uh, with Thad and Janice and we were talking about their um, wedding ceremony that was coming up and uh, I asked them, you know, in general, what's a general theme or like a a headline statement that you guys want to communicate to your loved ones about um, your wedding and about your relationship with God as a couple? And without skipping a beat, they both said, well, we really just want people to see that even through hard things and difficult things, that God uh, does beautiful work in the lives of people. And that just made my heart sing, because we resonate in terms of our past experiences uh, with relationships. And even on their most, uh, the most important day of their relationship, the first desire that they had was, That people would know that God does all things, even through imperfect lives. We can't do that unless we're willing to be public about our faith. Uh, And we can't do that unless we're willing to be living testimonies to God's restoration at work in our lives. Uh, We often tend to think that when we fail the hardest, God is further from us but that the truth, especially as it's displayed here, is God's never closest to us than than when we're at our worst. When we're at our weakest moment is when God is drawing closest to us uh, in our lives. I had uh, had, uh, the uh, opportunity to go a conference with Chuck and uh, Rob, we went to this conference called Beautiful Orthodoxy and they had this speaker named Abby Hudo, and she gave this amazing talk about the uh, vital role of women in the body of Christ and how we really can't even reflect the beauty and the character of God's nature as a church unless we fully embody that as brothers, sisters, as as an organic whole family. Uh, But in that, she told this story about uh, the beauty of motherhood and how it reflects the love of God. And she started telling this story about her son uh, who got in trouble. I can't remember what he did. He was at school, he got in trouble, and she got a call from the counselor that said, look, your son's coming home and he's got a letter that you need to read and it's going to tell you everything that he did wrong today. I just need you to know that he's, he's in pretty bad shape about it. <laughs> and she tells a story about looking out her window and she sees her, sees her son get off the bus and he gets off the bus. He's literally walking like Charlie Brown into the house and she said there was part of her that was frustrated and then she said the overwhelming uh, desire as a mother especially as a disciple and a mother was to communicate the gospel to him and she sat him down before he even pulled the letter out and he said look I need you to know that you are my son and I love you with every fiber of my being And there is nothing that this letter is going to tell me that can change that that I love you and I am proud of you. And her son's countenance just lifted right up. And so they pulled out the letter and they read about all his crimes against humanity that he had performed that day. Uh, This is is the same experience with Peter. God wants the same experience with you and I. He wants to come to you at your worst and to remind you that there is nothing that you can do that that can separate you from, from his love and especially from his resurrection power and how it's going to work itself out in your life. And that highlights a third point, uh, that Jesus shows us again and, and again and again that he truly overcomes every obstacle, even the ones that we erect between us. Uh, probably the, my favorite part of this story is this just comedic exchange that Peter has with Jesus about John. I mean, if you just blast through this chapter, you're like, wait, what? Uh, He just had this transformative, redemptive conversation with Jesus. This is a man who, like, talk about volatile, went from like, Jesus is coming to kill me, probably. At least I'm not an apostle anymore. He certainly doesn't like me. Jesus restores him fully. Uh, Gives him a charge as an apostle and a disciple. Put back on the mission field. And then what does Peter do after that conversation's over? Did you catch that? He immediately starts asking about John. <laughs> it's the first thing that he does. Uh, it's almost as if he's standing there. He's like, oh my gosh, thank you, Jesus. I, I, there was no, I didn't believe that you would still love me. I certainly didn't think that I would still be an apostle or that I, you'd still be using me. This is so amazing. And then John gets into his view and he's like, what What about that dude? <laughs> It's almost as if he's like, look I, look, I know he ran quicker to the tune to me, okay? I've been eating too many fish, too much hummus. I actually don't even know if they ate hummus. Uh, I got it, Jesus, all right? I know. Uh, I know he, just, he saw it was you before I did. I get it, okay? I know John is the one. You guys are super tight, I get it. But uh, Jesus has literally just said, this is what's going to happen to you in the future. You need to follow me. And what does Peter do? He doesn't say, gosh, that's scary. How's this going to work out? What does that mean? He's like, well, what about John? Uh, Look, I know you guys are tight, but doesn't he deserve to die a miserable death too? I mean, what what about this disciple? I love that because it reminds you and I that uh, even though we're fully restored, even though we're perfectly loved, and even though... uh, we are still in process spiritually. It doesn't change how much God loves us. He's still going to use us even though we're not fully redeemed. You know the reason why I love that? Because it liberates you just to be wherever you're at. One of the best descriptions of this church that anybody ever gave was a good brother, Joel Fitzpatrick. One day he said, yo man, your church is like the island of misfit toys. And I was like, yes, that is it. Uh, this church is a community of people who God wants just where we're at so he could do his work of making us beautiful in his own way. That sets us free to be wherever we're at. Uh, one of my favorite quotes by Johnny Cash is uh, if you're familiar with this story, he's a country singer who was uh, a drug addict but also a Christian at the same time. Shocking, I know that that could happen. But, uh, and he was notorious because he was a very well-known public figure and he would vacillate in his addiction and in his life of discipleship, and a guy was interviewing him uh, once and asking him about that. You know, isn't that kind of, how do you you explain that? Some people would say that kind of makes you hypocritical, and he said, look, here's what I know. I'm partly good, and I'm partly bad, but I know that I'm being redeemed because Jesus loves me, and I was like, that is it. That's a perfect summary of the gospel at work in the lives of people, and that always starts wherever we're at. Uh, That always starts wherever we're at. For Peter, it started right there on the shoreline in his worst moment. Uh, That also means that even though we have an inconsistent faith, God is going to do the work that he's called us to do because it's based on his love for us and how that plays out in our life. And it's super important to note that in this conversation with Jesus, he literally tells Peter, my love is going to sustain you and your calling, even to the point that one day, you will give your life for me. You will die because you belong to me, and you won't even have a choice. You know what's amazing about that, is in this moment of restoration, Peter is told what his end will be, and he will go on to serve and to follow Jesus for roughly three decades, knowing that he would die. That's not a testimony to Peter's desire to love Jesus well. It's a testimony to God's love for Peter and how it sustained him. And if you're familiar with the story, it's not the last time Peter made a mess. Uh, He would go on to make other mistakes, some of them which were pretty considerable. Uh, but it was God's love that would sustain him and that's why the last thing that Jesus says to him is follow me. And you know that's God's call to you and I as well, that we, uh, that we are called to simply follow him. Not, not to clean up our lives, not to hide from him, uh, but to simply learn how to follow him. And to do that based on the faith that he weaves into the weakest areas of us in our hearts. Um, I, some of you may know, Rob and I went to Bible college together. We've been friends for about 18 years. Uh, But Rob was ordained into ministry, I think about eight or nine years before I was. I don't know if that's true, but about eight years before I was. There's good reasons for that. When we started out in ministry, I got together with some friends, and we started a Bible study. I was young, very arrogant, very sure of myself. I knew I loved Jesus, man, and I was going to change the world. I was really like cage stager at seminary we have this term cage stager where a person gets a little bit of biblical truth just enough to be dangerous to everybody in the planet Uh, and I was like that and uh, me and one of my good friends started this Bible study and it blew up in short order God was doing beautiful and amazing things in this ministry it went from six guys in a garage and suddenly it was like 73 people meeting in a church and I was convinced I this is my church wasn't even done with Bible college yet (laughs) Uh, I was like, this is my church. This is it. Because I love Jesus so well, and I'm preaching the gospel so clear. This is it. Uh, And, you know, I was so sure of myself and my devotion. And, and, you know, through a series of events, God ended up wrenching that ministry out of my hands uh, because I was not ready for it. And God had to go on a long journey of restoration with me. And uh, what was even more painful in that moment is God took that ministry, and it exploded. Even to this day, it's this beautiful ministry that my good friend runs to this day, uh, that has multiple treatment centers. It's this beautiful, biblically influenced ministry to alcoholics and addicts, that is well known, well respected all over San Diego and nationally. And I thought that was supposed to be my church, uh, but God had this whole journey that I was going on, and. It got even worse. After that I got into the season where my first marriage eventually fell apart. There's a number of complex reasons for that. But at the end of that six year period, you know what I was convinced of? That I was disqualified and Jesus must not love me because I screwed up so bad. It was a long time ago. And there's a lot that happened between then and now, but what I could tell you is that I, I am standing on a stage as a pastor, and the day that Rob and I signed up for Bible college, the only thing I knew is that that was the call that God placed on my life. And I'm telling you guys, I went through some seasons of real pain and suffering in those intervening years. And I was thoroughly convinced, especially after a divorce, I could never be a pastor. And yet, here I am. And let me tell you, you could talk to my wife, she'll tell you, it's not, you know, I am not perfect, I make plenty of messes. And despite that, God's calling played out in a very gracious and wonderful way. That liberates me to stand here as an ordained pastor and tell you I'm a divorcee. Now, I was so prideful, I ruined a ministry blessing that God gave me. Why, because it says more about him and how despite that, he's done beautiful things in my life. And I get to participate in that. That's the story of Peter. It's the story of you and I. God invites you and I to be living monuments and living testimonies to his beauty and his goodness. Uh, and we get to do that when his love dominates us. It's a privilege that we have. We we'll get to display that to the whole world. Uh, let me pray for us. And, and uh, Let's thank God for that love that overcomes us and our failures. Lord, thank you for, um, <laughs> thank you for servants like Peter. Uh, we thank you that you um, have called men to such a high calling and women to such a high calling in your church that, that uh, we can look to and relate to and, and see that um, as, as bad as we might screw things up, uh, it doesn't disqualify us from belonging to you, and not only that, but it doesn't disqualify us from being loved by you. And we pray, Father, uh, that as we look to you and your resurrection power and your love, that you begin to show us what it means in our lives personally, that it's the very transformative uh, it 's the very transformative paradigm that you 've called us to live in and, and to see all of reality through. that we look at life in the way that you see our lives unfolding as a journey of learning to walk with you as perfectly as we do and a journey of learning to make you known through our shortcomings as well as our strengths through our limitations as well as uh, the way that you work through us that draws other people to you and that we would point them to the love of Christ that overcomes every obstacle. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.